The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. We've known for a while now that America's premier clean coal project, the Kemper Power Plant in Mississippi, is in trouble. But a whistleblower says it's a lot worse than we realized. In this edition, we'll dig deeper into the struggles of clean coal. Then, the FBI is investigating the flow of money to utility regulators in Arizona. We'll provide some context. Finally, utility commissioners have rejected Nextera's bid to acquire Hawaiian Electric. What's next for a power company that is facing some of the most pressing challenges of any in America? Catherine Hamilton is in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hi, another beautiful day in D.C. Jigger Shaw is in New York City. Hello, Jigger. Hey, hey. At this week's Republican National Convention in Cleveland, GOP politicians doubled down on their commitment to coal, even calling it clean in their official national platform. Last night, Republicans took to the stage at the convention to praise coal and demonize anything that might threaten it. Very predictable, nothing surprising there. Coal can get cleaned up, of course, but that comes at a steep, steep price, something that even the most ardent supporters are finding hard to get behind in practice. Earlier this month, the New York Times published a blockbuster piece on the Kemper power plant, a carbon capture and sequestration project supported by the stimulus that is billions of dollars over budget and still not in service. Securities regulators are investigating the use of government funds. Ratepayers in Mississippi are suing Southern Company. And now a whistleblower has released thousands of documents showing that Southern Company covered up its problems and lied about timelines. This is the latest blow to the clean coal industry, if you can even call it an industry, which detractors say will never materialize. So let's talk about Kemper and what it says about the prospects for carbon capture and sequestration, known, of course, as CCS. Catherine, what new did we learn from this investigation by The New York Times? Yeah, so they kind of put everything in one piece. So they laid out that there are two federal investigations uh, by the Security and Exchange Commission. There are two lawsuits. One is from the Mississippi taxpayers. They really put the timeline into a clear perspective. They talked about um, how the technology is proven as a technology, but has not yet been able to be scaled or affordable. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But they really focused on this project and how it was very much of a pet project of this administration. In fact, you know, EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy had used this project as the poster child on how we're going to meet our climate goals. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to figure out who is to blame here, because it seems like a lot of people are to blame. The federal government was really eager to provide stimulus funding and to prove that clean coal works. Mississippi Governor Haley Barber put a lot of money on the line to support Kemper and actually changed the law, you know, helped push through this new law that basically allowed companies like Southern Company to rate-base these projects before they were finished and to pass on the costs before construction was completed to ratepayers. And in this area of Mississippi, 
you know, the, the per capita, the average per capita income is $14,837. The unemployment rate is roughly double the national average, as the New York Times pointed out. So this has come at a real cost to ratepayers. And then the whistleblower pointed out that Southern Company basically lied time and time again. It pushed its engineers to rush the project. It lied about timelines. So you kind of had three bad actors here that have contributed to this disastrous project. And, and they all seem to be culpable. Yeah, so there was a lot of over-promising and under-delivering. Um, it sounds like there's some mismanagement, uh, covering up of and concealing problems that they were having. It became less attractive over time. It, they were way over budget. So it went from a $2.4 billion to a $7 billion budget. They're two years past when they're supposed to have been firing up. And... You know, now you have this situation where when it's over budget and past the deadline, it's becoming way less attractive because natural gas prices are low and there's so many other options for that area. Jigger, who do you think is to blame for this? Do you agree with my assessment that there are a lot of people here who are responsible, that it's not just Southern Company? Like, who would you lay the blame on? Well, so I look at this from a completely different direction, which is that I really think this is Haley Barber's fault. You know, I mean, it's not just this project. He also spent a bunch of money on Kior and a bunch of money on Stion's manufacturing facility, which is technically still running in Mississippi, and other failed boondoggle projects in Mississippi. And had he just taken all that money and put a billion-dollar solar rebate program in place, like New York Sun did, we'd have, you know, like 100 new companies in Mississippi and $4 billion of economic development and thousands of people with new jobs that are blue collar workers. And I just find it like extraordinary that the Republicans during the RNC convention, you know, their poster child governor, Haley Barber, is the one who basically is high on the pork. Jigger, are you saying that a Republican is picking winners and losers? That's impossible. Well, I mean, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just maddening, right? I mean, it's actually not you know, like this is a whole nother thing about, you know, our podcast last week with Ruben talking about we have transportation, all of the above strategy. I mean, at some point you do have to choose winners in terms of categories. Clean coal probably shouldn't have been a category and neither should biofuels probably, um, you know, as well as com concentrating solar thermal and lots of other technologies that should be probably pushed to the side. But but when you think about like, you know, states like Mississippi, there really is a good way to spend federal dollars and it's and state dollars. And it's not the Kemper clean coal plan that everyone knew was going to be a disaster before it was even started. Yeah, And, you know, this is not the first time they've tried these. You know, they've done this for many administrations. The Bush administration, they had to shut down future gen project. They keep trying to do it. But the one of the issues is, you know, 25% of the electric generation in the world is coal. And we have to do something with the emissions. If we can't, if we're not able to shut them all down, then we have to have something uh, to do with it. And I think you know, everybody is trying to make CCS work. The issue is on whose back should that fall? Yeah, I think you're, but you're framing, Catherine, which I think is the right way to say it normally, is that like that, you know, politically, it'd be better to figure out CCS because then you wouldn't have to count all of these coal plants as stranded assets. 
But the right answer is they are stranded assets. We actually do have to shut them down for varieties of reasons, right? The reason why pregnant women can't eat fish is because of coal plants. Where does that mercury come from? It's not because people are breaking thermometers and dumping mercury into the water supply, right? I mean, it's there's lots of reasons to shut down coal plants, mostly because of human health. I think you're both right. I mean, many coal plants are going to need to be shut down. And uh, that's largely because of the public health issue, but also the technology is not quite ready and economic for these power plants. But I do agree with Catherine that we need more of a scattershot approach. And I think over the last few years on this podcast, I've become more and more of an all of the above type clean energy person, where I think that we need to clearly invest more in CCS. Uh, We need to manage these projects and expectations much better than this one, of course. We need to rely on extending uh, nuclear permits to ensure that our low-carbon baseload power is still running. And, of course, we need lots of intermittent renewables, lots of storage, lots of demand response. Like, I I think we need it all, of course. And so I'm willing to take some political risk for investing in technologies like CCS. But this was a particularly bad example. I mean, the project was just really poorly managed. In fact, one of the engineers who spoke uh, to the whistleblower at Southern Company really put it best. And he said, it has nothing to do with design. It has nothing to do with the technology. It just has to do with poor project management. And I would add to that and say poor politics. And this to me is a sign that CCS is not ready, but it's also pretty unique in the layers of bad decision making. Right. So I'm generally on your side, Stephen, in terms of I don't mind the government spending money on one-off projects to prove technology. It is their job. It's not the job of venture capitalists or other people to do that. But at the same time, coal is a particularly big abomination, right? I mean, it kills people in, you know, in the mining process. It basically pollutes water and 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 air in in every which way the coal trains are basically t- you know raising the costs of rail service because they're taking up so much rail capacity that could be used for other goods and services i mean then we've got a, a 28 step process after the fact to clean up all the pollutants that come out of the stack which costs even more money and as catherine says it's no longer even cost effective because of cheap natural gas and cheap renewables so at some point you just have to say this in entire body of work is not worth working on and should be shut down. Yeah, it's particularly disappointing that um, well, several administrations have supported the concept of clean, the oxymoron concept of clean coal, but that this administration really did that um, and supported it. What it did, it politicized it in a number of ways, but one is that you know, the Republican platform says that coal is affordable, abundant, and a clean domestic energy source, which is like, they're not even pretending that you need clean, you know, that you need carbon capture and sequestration. They're saying it's clean no matter what. Yeah, they just scrapped the pretense, as someone said said this afternoon on Twitter, and they just said clean is coal in general. It is crazy. The politics of this really are infuriating. So you look at the millions of dollars that congressional Republicans spent on investigating the Solyndra bankruptcy. Solyndra cost taxpayers around $535 million. The Kemper Clean Coal Plant has cost $6.7 billion. It's driven up rates for some of the poorest people in the country. And now the GOP goes out and makes coal a central piece of its platform. And there's virtually no word on this from Republicans. Zero investigation. 
It's mind-blowing. Yeah, but speaking of blowing, I did hear that there were flames shooting out one of the stacks at Kemper. So they're saying they fired up one of the gasifiers. Somebody's still trying to figure out what those flames were about, but they may have started running part of it. I guess the final question I have, Catherine, and I don't know if you have any particular insight on this, is what does it do to the clean power plan? Because the Obama administration, as you mentioned, really was banking on this technology being ready and being applied to existing power plants. Do you know what happens next? Are they reevaluating internally? I mean, mostly I thought it went toward the new power plant development. So I don't, I think most of the solutions that were in the clean power plan um, for existing plants are, do not speak to clean coal. They really, they're not. Yes, that's right. Sorry. Yes, they, they you speak are right. To, it is for new power yeah, plants. So I think that's just a different issue. But, you know, they've got to be thinking differently behind the scenes. I mean, I don't have any particular intelligence, but, you know, they were definitely relying on this technology being being ready and the Kemper plant up and running. So Yeah, they definitely said CCS needed to be done in any new coal facilities. And since no one's able to build a CCS plant that works or is affordable, then, you know, that probably falls out as one of the options. But natural gas is still an option. But just to be clear, I mean... I think a pox on both their houses. I think the Republicans and the Democrats own this crap and should abandon clean coal. I don't know if I'm ready to abandon it myself, but I agree that this is not necessarily a partisan issue. There are a lot of people responsible here uh, on all layers of politics. Okay, let's take a quick break here in the middle of the show to recognize Solar Edge. Our sponsor, Solar Edge, is a leading inverter and optimizer company, and they are talking a lot about the smart home. Because solar PV systems are not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal, they're not dumb. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smarter. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It is an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now also batteries and home load management devices. What is the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems and bringing them all together? It is the inverter. On the horizon is a future where the smart Solar Edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid and connected to the cloud. It controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances in real time. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy and Solar Edge's products, visit SolarEdge.com. We're going to talk now about a story that Jigger mentioned at the end of our live show in June, and we didn't really get to talk about it in much detail. So last month, the FBI started investigating the flow of money in a 2014 Arizona election which included the campaigns of utility commissioners. The FBI interviewed Arizona Corporation Commission staff, some former regulators, and Arizona Public Service about how much money was used in the campaign. The details of those conversations were not disclosed. Uh, the FBI is also interviewing a progressive watchdog group, the Checks and Balances Project, which has been very critical of utilities and regulators in Arizona. Basically, federal investigators are trying to figure out whether 2014 elections in Arizona were influenced by the state's biggest utility, APS, and whether regulators were in direct contact with the utility about the election. So I brought this up this week for a couple reasons. The first is that it does show people are starting to take the relationship between utilities, regulators, and politicians more seriously. But I also think it's important to put this into context and point out that the FBI, that the FBI is not implicating the people it's interviewing. This is, doesn't necessarily reflect 
on regulators broadly across the country as well. So Jigger and I had a debate about this off tape, and my argument was basically that um, we can't prove anything in Arizona yet, and that came from you know a couple people in the regulatory space. And I also think we should be careful about applying this to regulators broadly across the country. And Jigger's argument is that this should make us think twice about the relationships between regulators and utilities, which have not really come on under scrutiny until recently. So Jigger, help me understand your argument in more detail. I mean, what do you think this investigation says? Well, I think we need to put into context the fact that this is a remarkably boring sector where you have an electric utility commission whose job it is to basically be a legal body that regulates the utility company so that you know they can keep rates fair for ratepayers right i mean cuz a rate cuz utility companies have a monopoly license in arizona what happened was the utility actually spent millions of dollars in dark money um which they've admitted freely to do to actually try to kill you know renewable energy projects and then separately there is um an accusation around um, one of the employees of the Arizona Corporation Commission and the utility company having ex parte conversations via text message, which they're not supposed to have. Um, And then separately, you're talking about a um, commissioner that's accused of getting a job at a nonprofit where he got paid um, on commission for money raised. And then Arizona you know, public service provided a large donation. Now, none of this is proven. It's all still just speculation and facts going back and forth. And I'm certainly not saying that someone is guilty, but I am saying that for a boring situation around a regulator and an and a utility company, there's just too much of this stuff going on. I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy. And you start to see it in other states as well. And like the Nevada, you know, Nevada uh, has a notorious sort of closeness between their commission and their utilities. And I, I just think that because of the success of solar and other technologies, you're starting to see a lot of this stuff come to light. So I think there are actually two different situations, Nevada and Arizona. One is an appointed commission. So Nevada, the governor can appoint whomever he wants to the commission. And Arizona was elected. So I looked at Nehruk to figure out, you know, how many commissioners appointed versus elected? What does that mean for how these things get done and what the relationships could potentially be and where the pressure points are? So of 258 commissioners, 208 are appointed and 58 are elected. So not as many are elected. The issue with elections, you would think this would actually be helpful to have commissioners elected because then they would have to respond and defend a public record. They would have to be serving the public that voted for them. But with Citizens United, there's there's so much more dark money. And so you're able to to work those elections in such a way that, you know, you can get what you want out of those. So right now, it's really hard to tell whether having an elected body as a commission or an appointed body is worse. Yeah, and post-Citizens United, I think this is new territory. And that is another reason why there's added scrutiny on these uh, you know, elections in the regulatory space. So just to, to balance this out a little bit, the solar industry has also used groups 
to advertise against utilities in Arizona. So it's funneled less money into Arizona, but it, it used these uh, shadow groups, if you will, to hit back at utilities. So the solar industry is using this avenue as well. Very little, um, though. I mean, the solar industry generally owns up to the fact that they put in the money. It's not like they said, yeah, they admitted it's not like to they it. said, they did moms, admit it to it. moms Who Love Solar is a grassroots funded organization, which is what Arizona Public Service did. They said, oh, no, we had nothing to do with this. And it wasn't until people found incontrovertible evidence. They're like, uh, I guess we did do it. Right. Um, so there were a couple groups operating in Arizona where you had uh, groups secretly putting money to advocate on behalf of solar, and, and they did admit to that. We don't know the exact amounts, but it seems like it's not as much as the utilities funneled in. Um, and, you know, uh, to, to follow up on what you said, Jigger, I mean, these are not proven yet. These are allegations. Uh, a judge ruled a couple of years ago, or maybe it was last year, that Bob Stump's text messages uh, that were allegedly with APS were not part of the public record, so we've not been able to see those. Uh, former regulator Gary Pierce has said that there is absolutely no tie between his votes on the commission and his son's campaign for office, which was another allegation. So there's a lot of controversy here. It seems like something something certainly happened, and there are very close ties between the regulators and the utilities. That is very clear, but we just don't know what the wrongdoing is yet, and we have to see how this plays out. I talked to an Arizona insider who said very clearly that there is a lot of smoke. I mean, they have to figure out exactly if there's a quid pro quo, but there is a lot of smoke around the fact that Commissioner Pierce did flip his views um, at the same time that his son, son was, you know, having a campaign for Secretary of State. And he's very, he was a very political guy, and he did meet often with the CEO of APS. So there's definitely some gray area there, and I don't know if it's going to end up like the governor of Virginia where they couldn't really establish a quid pro quo, but there was still a lot that you really would not want a commissioner to do with a utility. Well, and you're talking about elections where the average amount of money spent is like $150,000. But in this particular election, the Free Enterprise Club, which was the dark money operation, spent you know an astonishing $1.3 million to make sure that the Democratic candidate didn't get elected. right? And then, of course, the winning you know, bidders or the winning commissioners are now like rubber stamping an 8% rate increase for APS. I, I just think that like, I, I just think that this, this deserves a lot more scrutiny, whether or not anyone's guilty in this particular case, because as Catherine was saying, a lot of these are appointed officials and the appointed officials aren't people that have electrical engineering degrees or law degrees for that matter. A lot of these guys are state legislators making $28,000 a year who suddenly need a $143,000 a year job. And they get appointed when their kid gets into high school. Well, I, actually, I think there's more risk in having someone run an election who doesn't know what they're doing in energy, who may be less sophisticated even than someone who's appointed. But of the four, so there were four GOP commissioners um, in the in the pool before they had to face the um, Democrats, and two of them were very pro-solar, and those were knocked out by the two that were very heavily supported by the industry, by the utility industry. But they're but they haven't really had to take a, a hard vote yet on net metering. That should be probably in the next month. So I'm not exactly sure how they're going to end up going. That I think the jury's out a little bit. So let's go to Hawaii last. We we turn to some big news there, where regulators turned down Nextera's 4.3 billion dollar acquisition of a Hawaiian electric company last week. 
Days later, NextEra abandoned the deal, opting to pay $90 million to end its painful two-year attempt to buy up Hawaii's main utility. This caps off a remarkable couple years for Hawaii, where we've seen a boom-bust in the solar industry, new regulatory proceedings to remake rates and the utility business model, a drastic change to net metering, companies moving in and out with new solar plus storage products, and on top of it, NextEra's contentious plan to buy up HECO. So I think the reasons why utility commissioners decided to decline this deal are are quite telling. Namely, they didn't think NextEra would do a very good job getting the state to 100% renewables while also moderating rates. Catherine, you looked at their arguments. What what did you think about how the commission framed this rejection? Yeah, so there were two legal standards that were they were trying to fit this into. One was is this reasonable in the public interest? And the other one is was is Nextera willing to provide the operational services of HECO? And on that second point is can they operate the system? Yes, they found that yes, that was not an issue. The issue was whether this was in the public interest. And they looked at benefits to ratepayers, the risks associated with those, the clean energy, the effects on local energy markets and the effects on local governments. And they just found that um, there were no details to support their claims that they would actually increase or go with the clean energy mandate. They just basically reiterated the clean energy mandates that are in place in Hawaii, but didn't explain how on earth they would get to them or even increase them. There was inadequate detail and uncertainty on the benefits, and they did not find that the benefits outweighed the risks. So they decided that it wasn't about NextEra, that this was specific to the application. They said NextEra was welcome to reapply or pick another, or he could pick another partner, but that the application did not convince them that the public interest outweighed the risk. Interestingly, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway filed very recently to do business there. So there's speculation that Berkshire Hathaway might want to buy up HECO. And of course, Berkshire Hathaway has uh, signals, signaled its intention to buy the transmission utility Encore in Texas, going on a bit of a regulated buying spree there. Well, and they're famously anti-distributed generation, so they're not going to be able to do any business in Hawaii. Jigger, can I guess your response to this one? We told you so? It was so obvious. I like, you know, I don't know where I was, but I was at a meeting with senior executives at NextEra. And they're like, Jigger, what do you think? And I'm like, you guys are sunk. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, first of all, they did not hire a Hawaiian law firm. They hired a law firm out of Miami that basically flew to Hawaii every time they needed to do something. They didn't have any local Hawaiian help. They basically, every time the Hawaiian people were to say, well, we want to do 100% renewable energy. They just mocked them and said, well, it's not possible. It's not cost effective to do so. I mean, it's just like, I couldn't imagine a worse process and a more bungled approach than what NextEra did. I want to quote from the commission filing the the commission concluded, quote, that these commitments essentially repeat existing statutory, regulatory, and other standards. In short, applicants' commitments in this area were simply too broad and vague to satisfy the public interest standard. So they just did not meet what the commission wanted. Um, as you said, Catherine, next era could decide that to rebid, but they, um, you know, they're going to break up this deal. They're going to pay $90 million now to actually $95 million now to end the transaction. There's a there's kind of a, a local push now to create a cooperative utility and to restructure HECO. 
Anybody got intel on how that might play out? Because I'm I'm kind of unclear on what the next steps are. Really, it sounds like it's up for, for it's up for grabs now. Yeah, it, I mean that's kind of how they originally started. Was that they had each island had its own kind of system, and Kauai still does. But now it looks like they may um, you know they may take them take it apart again. Yeah, no, I I think that there's several really good bidders that are going to bid on this that have actually been waiting in the wings to bid. Um, and I think you'll see some amazing ex-utility CEOs bid on really creating the utility of the future. And um, so I think this is actually going to turn out really well for the Hawaiian people. And I'm really glad that uh, the commissioners saw to it to allow that to happen. That's great, because I think a lot of investment is going into the state. There's a ton of innovation, and they have all these renewable resources at their fingertips. Yeah, this is going to be fun to watch. I think that wraps up this conversation. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, you are first this week. So, you know, I think we talked about nuclear power um, in the last episode, and and um, and I, I think we sort of glossed over what the governor of New York really has proposed, which is to save the nuclear plants in New York um, by subsidizing them to the tune of $20 a megawatt hour. Um, to keep them open for the next 10 years. And um, obviously that number might go down if natural gas prices go up. And so it's a formula that basically is tied to wholesale prices. But, um, but I think we sort of glossed over how big the numbers are. I mean, it's you know $400 million in the first year and then a billion dollars sort of in the end um, per year. And, uh, and I, I really do think it's a watershed moment around you know, sort of bringing more common sense to sort of low carbon... Um, you know, uh, shift on on our electricity grid. Right. So I think we're all in agreement that that it would be beneficial to keep these plants open. But are you also saying that there's a real cost here that we should be paying attention to? What exactly are you trying to say? Well, I think it puts it puts real numbers. Well, first, I think the political um, lift. I mean, this is a governor who banned fracking. So the environmental groups are pretty strong. Right. So the real lift to actually save the nuclear plants are pretty big. But the second thing is that actually looking at the numbers, I mean, the solar industry to support utility scale solar in New York needs a subsidy of roughly $60 a megawatt hour. And so basically you could you know, get another 10 years of clean energy out of these nuclear power plants for 20 bucks a megawatt hour. It's a pretty good deal. And the ones in New York are not on fault lines. <laughs> yeah, good point. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, so there's this new report out on smokeandfumes.org from the Center for International Environmental Law, which is funded by Greenpeace. But what they've done is they've made uh, tens of thousands of documents available from the oil and tobacco industries. Now, we've often made the point that, oh, the oil executives are doing the same thing the tobacco executives did in uh, doubling down on you know lack of science. But what, what these documents show is that the tobacco industry actually learned from the oil industry, the original playbook. It was all through the same PR firm. This is like starting in 1957. For, so for 60 years, they've been using this kind of misinformation through science, communication, and consumer psychology to put all this doubt and uncertainty into the climate change debate. Um, and, you know, gas stations and cigarettes are very closely linked. That's the number uh, two thing that people, number two thing that people purchase when they go to get gas in a gas station. Um, and it had been for many, many years. So these industries, it just showed through these documents how linked they have been, um, not only in their, in the way that they sell their products, but in the way that they've kind of used a playbook and a strategy to keep going. Yeah, I, I heard recently on the radio, NPR reported that uh, Mike Pence, who's 
Donald Trump's vice presidential pick, the governor of Indiana, uh, had previously written against uh, laws banning tobacco and had defended the, the tobacco industry. Yeah, in, in 2000, he wrote an editorial that was pretty shocking that said that um, that he was against the proposed settlement between the government and the tobacco industry, calling it big government. He said, time for a quick reality check. Despite the hysteria from the political class and the media, smoking doesn't kill. Okay, my last one is a big piece of news this week. You may have seen that we are getting acquired. GTM is getting acquired by Verisk Analytics. So Verisk is a very large company. They provide data analytics for customers in insurance, in natural resources, in energy, and in financial services. And they bought up this big company called Wood McKenzie, which is another data research firm. They focus a lot on energy markets, mostly oil and gas. And they've been looking for a long time at the, the clean energy space. And so they are now taking Green Tech Media under their wing, and we will become a part of Wood McKenzie. So this is a pretty big move for us. And I guess uh, we I will wait to talk in detail about the deal until after it's closed. But I will say that no, the Energy Gang podcast is not going to get canceled. And no, you're not going to see any changes on the website with our news, except for some slight branding changes. So the GTM that you know and love will stay the same. Well, that's a great congratulations. It's, a, it's validation for all the great work you guys have done. Thank you. And you guys have uh, played a role in it as well. And dear listeners, you've played a role in our journey. We thank you very much. We thank Solar Edge as well for being our sponsor. You know where to find us, any podcast app you choose. I'm not going to force you to pick the one you want, but of course iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher are the big ones. We're on NPR One as well. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. We find a lot of listeners through that channel. And email us with any questions, comments, concerns, show ideas, podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And that wraps up the show with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. <laughs> <laughs>